So today will be um, sort of heavy. Um, if you uh, don't have a, note, a notebook or anything like that, uh, use the back of your car to take notes because uh, uh, it would be uh, to your advantage to do so uh, just because we're talking about uh, a very difficult uh, subject in my mind, I think, to sort of uh, get our heads uh, around uh, completely. Uh, so now you're going to hear some things from me today that uh, I, I want you to wait for the final verdict before you make uh, your initial judgment about what I have to say, uh, because it may not uh, come across to you so right at the very beginning. But trust me, uh, uh, I am, I am, I am, I am holding to the scriptures on this uh, thing. So remember, last week uh, we talked about um, uh, the law. We talked about a, a particular passage about the law revealing sin. That the law reveals sin. It, it makes sin known uh, to us uh, and before God. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Word declares that uh, where the law is given, sin increases, right? So the, the Word says where the law is given, sin increases. In other words, um, because we have the law and, and now we know what is wrong versus what is right, the knowledge of what is wrong uh, does not uh, always prohibit us from doing that which is wrong. And so when we do that which is wrong, uh, sin is then increased because we have a knowledge of, of, of that. So last week, Dax told me that he asked the question in the youth group, um, how do we understand the seriousness of sin to God? And I think it's an apt uh, question. Uh, how do we understand the seriousness of sin to God? Because a lot of times we just sort of gloss over sin uh, because it doesn't mean much to us. But, but given what we're reading in Leviticus, how is it that we are to understand the seriousness of sin to God? And I've got one statement that I think clarifies the seriousness of sin to God. Just stick with me. And here's the statement. God is angry. God is angry. Uh, it is uh, his law, in fact, that brings this anger about. What are you talking about? Well, look at Romans 4. 15. It says, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And so in the other words, where there is law, there is sin. And because there is sin uh, by way of the law, there is wrath against that sin. God is, wrath is just another word for anger. And so God is angry at sin. This is how serious sin is to God. The words of Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, preacher of uh, the 1700s, uh, 
uh, in his seminal, one of his seminal messages, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He wrote, The wrath of God is like great waters that are restrained for the present, but they increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. That's some hard stuff. <laughs> he was like, God is real angry. <laughs> like, how angry is he? You better get out of the way. <laughs> and so the question, the question is, because I already know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. It's two things you're thinking. But I, before I say what I think you might be thinking, let me ask the question. The question is this. Let me ask the question. The question is this. What are you being we, what are we being saved from? What are we being saved from? Is it the suffering of this world? Is it sickness? Is it mental illness and poverty? Is it having too much or too little? What is it that we are being saved from? And I am here to uh, make the case that what we are being saved from is indeed the wrath and the anger of God. This is what we are being saved from. God does not compromise on sin. The word says it is a dreadful or fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God does not take sin lightly. It must be paid for, and it will be paid for either through judgment and or wrath. Sin will be paid for. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1.10. It says, And to wait for the Son from heaven, who he raised from the de dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of God. This is what Jesus has delivered us from. He has saved us from the wrath of God. Matthew 10.28 says, uh, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. These are the words of Jesus. Like, our fear is not of anything in this world. What you should be afraid of is an angry God. Now, I know what you're thinking. What do you mean, Pastor Anthony? My God is love. 
my God loves everyone. What are you talking about him being angry? Like, this is nonsense. Uh, there's no such thing with regard to my God. And he is love. He is love. And it is, in fact, his anger that makes his love so great. It is the fact that he is angry toward sin which makes his love so great. Now, uh, God, uh, God's anger is a holy and righteous one, right? It's not like the kind of anger that you and I exhibit uh, in our own pride. Uh, we're, we're talking about an anger that is justified because of who he is. And God has the capacity within his um, 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 omni-everything, right? He, he has it within his capacity to be loving and angry at the same uh, time. It is not necessary for him to only be one versus the other at any given uh, point in time. It is his anger that makes his love so unfathomable. Fathomable. Uh, J.I. Packer, uh, in uh, his, his work, Knowing God, and I would refer it to anyone. It is a great, great uh, book. It's an all-time classic written in the 70s. If you've never read it, uh, I, would, uh, I would say read that book. And, and like, it's, it's, it's a seminal work. You should have it on uh, in your library. Uh, he refers to uh, this idea of God's uh, anger and his love uh, in this sense. He, he calls it his goodness and his severity, that they both exist within him at the same time. Romans 2, 4 and 5, it says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so, in other words, God is angry, but to some degree he has hidden that anger. And uh, in the time where he has not made it known to you, it is an opportunity for us uh, to experience his patience and his love and his kindness because uh, he's simply given us time to acknowledge who he is and there will come a time when his patience runs out and he will reveal uh, his anger in his judgment against the world. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says, but God shows... Uh, now." I really want you to be with me because I love this verse. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. And so even in the midst of his anger, this is why, like, the fact that he is angry and still loving us is so, like, it's unreal, unbelievable 
that he would be this kind of person. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from uh, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And so in the midst of how God feels about sin and his understanding of it, and that God is holy and he would have no place with sin, In the midst of all of that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, showing us the ultimate love on our behalf. God makes plain his love, even when it would be right of him to exercise his anger and his judgment. When you comprehend the love of God and you understand that everything about us should turn him the other way, and yet he uses his anger to demonstrate his love, his patience, and his kindness. This is the God that we serve, that even in the midst of his anger towards sin, that he would make available the life of Christ, so that we can have life with him. Now you say, what does this have to do with Leviticus? It has everything to do with uh, Leviticus, because today we're going to be talking about the atonement and just what uh, makes it possible for us, uh, despite God's anger, for us to have the right kind of relationship with God even in the midst of that anger. And the atonement makes that possible. Atonement can't uh, really be understood without grasping sin uh, that has separated and created a barrier for us that only God's love can traverse. Like, it's, it's impossible to understand uh, atonement or even the need for it If you don't understand that there is a reason why we have been separated and are irreconciled from God, and that is because of sin, and even more so because of who he is in terms of uh, looking at our sin. He is holy. We are not, right? And so our sin uh, justifies his anger against us and justifies him cutting us off and not having the relationship with us. And so, without the understanding of sin, really difficult to understand atonement. In other, here's a, here's a really simple way to put it. It's really hard for someone to be saved that doesn't know they need saving. That's what it boils down to. Really hard, really difficult for a person who thinks that they're good with God despite how God sees them, and that they really don't need what God has to offer. This is what it boils down to. The understanding of atonement and your need for atonement has to be in the context of understanding that 
It is needed. Now, I looked up the definition of atonement, and look what I found on dictionary.com of all places to find uh, this definition. And it says, the doctrine concerning the reconciliation of God and humankind, especially as accomplished through the life, suffering, and death of Christ. I think a theologian went on dictionary.com and wrote that definition. Like, that's the last thing I expected to find uh, with regard to, like, just a secular resource. <laughs> the doctrine concerning the reconciliation of God and humankind, especially as accomplished through the life, suffering, and death of Christ. There is so much to say about uh, atonement. There is so much that the Scriptures has uh, that we could unpeel. We've got one Sunday and about 40 minutes. I'm going to try to give you as much as I can in, in that little bit of time. But, but understand that there's so much more. I would encourage you to read uh, through Hebrews. It's, it's a good place to start in trying to tie the law and atonement and priesthood and all of that together to really understand what this uh, is all about. But I will give you... <laughs> As, as much as I can. Uh, and so why atonement with regard to Leviticus? Leviticus gives us the first official glimpse, the official glimpse and shadow of the ultimate atonement provided by Christ and, uh, and what is sanctioned by God. It is not the first example of sacrifice, but it is the first prescription given by God for atonement to be made. And so it's the first time in the scriptures where we see God actually giving instructions as to how atonement is to be made, how it is to be done. And everything that God gives in his prescription actually foreshadows Jesus Christ. Everything. Everything. The laws of atonement all culminate in the day of atonement found in Leviticus 15, which gives us a lot of great insight into how atonement is accomplished. So I will read the passage and then get your notebooks out because it gets difficult. All right, Leviticus 16, and it says, and I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to skip a few verses, uh, but hopefully I captured the essence of what God has to say. And hopefully you are able to keep up with us in the reading uh, for Journey 2020. And if you have fallen behind, it's okay. Just step in and, and get wherever we are right now. Uh, it, it's okay. Leviticus 16 says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and your brother not to come uh, at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself 
and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Now, if you've got an ESV, you read Azazel. If you've got NIV and a couple of other translations, it says the scapegoat. And so I uh, want you to know that I'm aware of that. We'll talk about why the difference uh, exists uh, here in just a second. The other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat uh, on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel, or the scapegoat, uh, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, and it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel, or as a scapegoat. Uh, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense uh, beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is, uh, for the people, and bring his blood inside the veil, and do with his blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness cleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. And when he has made, uh, when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and it shall uh, let and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And so let me talk about the discrepancy real quick. We don't actually know what the word Azazel means, right? And so uh, for those of you who have translations that put the word uh, there, uh, it's simply because we don't know what it means. They just uh, transliterated, put the word directly into English. However, for those of you who have translations that say scapegoat, uh, they're simply identifying the role of the second goat and replacing uh, the word Azazel with what they believe uh, is intended in terms of 
uh, of what the role of the goat is to be. He is to be the scapegoat, right? This is where the idea of scapegoat actually comes, comes from. It is uh, Levit Leviticus. Now, this is the most significant and important day of the year uh, of Israel's year completely, the Day of Atonement. It is the most important day. Everything had to be cleansed and purified. The holy place, the tabernacle, the altar, the priest before he could enter in with the sacrifice for the people. Atonement had to be made for everything. The, the bull for Aaron and his family and the two goats uh, for the people, right? And for um, uh, all of the pieces in the tabernacle. It is most important. So, within the context of this passage, I think it's important that you understand, like, what the layout looks like. So, uh, I put the map up here. Hopefully, uh, you can see uh, this is the tabernacle and the curtains that surround the tabernacle, the entrance in the front. Here's your entrance. You have the altar here. Thankfully, I'm tall. I can reach it. Right? Uh, we have the holy place, which is the, the, bigger, the larger structure inside. And within the larger structure, the most holy place, which is inside of uh, the other side of the veil, the curtain, which hid or separated the holy place from the most holy place. And inside the holy place uh, is the ark, or inside the most holy place is the ark of the covenant. Now, this, this is sort of an approximation of what it might have looked like. We don't know exactly, but given the description that God gives to Moses as to how to make it, essentially you have a, a, a wooden uh, Acadian uh, wood box that has been overlaid in gold, uh, and it has uh, the poles on either side for easy transportation so that when they're getting up to move, because they're essentially nomads in the wilderness at this point, when they get up to move, they can easily put four people on uh, every edge and carry it with them. Uh, I know that Providence some years ago uh, had someone build, build a life-size model of this thing, and it is very heavy. Uh, I tried to get it here, but it was like, no, we, we can't do it. So <laughs> I just had to show you the picture instead. <clears throat> and so over on top of uh, the ark uh, is a golden lid. Uh, and this lid is the mercy seat. This is the mercy seat that you see referred to in the passage over and over again. And on top of the mercy seat sits two cherubim with their uh, wings folded over, touching one another. Uh, this is the mercy seat, the cherubim uh, over uh, top. So now that you see that, understand that the tabernacle and even all of the pieces within the tabernacle are really copies of heavenly things, right? The, the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews in Hebrews 8 and 5 tells us they serve 
a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. In other words, God uh, represented to Moses what was in heaven uh, as a pattern to design all of, of what was put into the tabernacle. And so when we talk about the holy of holies, the most holy place, this represents the very throne room of God. And the mercy seat is his throne. And the presence of God, when the priest was to come in once a year, in the cloud would hover over the mercy seat. And the atonement was to be made by sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. All right, you with me? Now, there are a few words. I don't typically do this because I don't like to, but it's, it's, uh, it is important for our understanding that we know uh, what these words mean. And so in the Hebrew, uh, there's a word called kafar, and it means to make atonement. It is a verb. Everywhere through the passage where you see God say, make atonement, make atonement, make atonement, he's using that word. And it uh, means uh, literally, in terms of his definition, uh, to uh, cover, to pacify, to propitiate, uh, propitiate, to atone for sin. This is what it means, to atone for sin, to propitiate. And we're going to get to that word in just a second. There's a second word uh, that is translated mercy seat, and it's kaporeth. Those two words are the same word. One is the verb form, and one is the noun form. Kafar is the verb form. Kaporeth, kaporeth is the noun form. The verb form is to make atonement. The noun form is mercy seat. All right. You with me so far? So back in the day, about 2,500 years ago or so, uh, some of uh, the Hebrew scholars came together and they wrote a Greek translation of the Old Testament. That Greek translation is still existing. We call it the Septuagint, and you see it represented with LXX 70, uh, the Roman numeral 70. And in the Septuagint, when they translated that passage and the word kaporeth into Greek, uh, the word for mercy seat, they used the word hilasterion. All right? I told you you got to take notes. The reason why it is important to understand that word, that word mercy seat, hilasterion, uh, and it uh, it literally means uh, having placating uh, or, uh, or expi expi exp <laughs> expiating force, uh, a means of appeasing, uh, uh, and it is a propitiation. Now, I've thrown out a lot of big words. I know. Stay with me because it's important because this word propitiate is throughout the scriptures. There are other places that this word exists. And you can't really understand what the word means without understanding uh, 
uh, this and the mercy seat and, and what we're talking about. And so uh, this idea of uh, his hilasterion being translated as mercy seat, what, is, what does it mean to propitiate? Uh, it means to, uh, it is the means of, of, it is the means of making appeasement, right? To satisfy someone's anger. This is what it means, to satisfy someone's anger. And, and in the context, there's another word, uh, appeasement, uh, and, and appeasement has to be made uh, because it removes the anger and allows for reconciliation to take place. Uh, it, it, it makes amends. It makes reparation. Um, this is what bringing the offering into the most holy place does. It appeases. It, 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 it quells the wrath. Right? It, 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 it makes God a stand down, if you will. It is a mercy seat. Now, when we talk about mercy, I don't know if any of you have ever heard uh, this definition of mercy, that mercy is not getting what you deserve. Right? And so when you go before the judge, and the judge has mercy upon you, the judge doesn't give you what you deserve. This is what mercy is. What you deserve is to be thrown under the jail, you know, in, in, in just the, the, most, uh, the, the most reckless, uh, unwanting place you could imagine being in. That's what we deserve, right? But through the atonement, bringing the blood behind the curtain. And sprinkling it on the mercy seat, you're asking God to essentially stand down on his wrath and grant you mercy. This is what propitiation is all about. You with me? All right. If you're not with me, just come see me afterward and we'll, we'll talk about it some more. So this is uh, the mercy seat. Uh, his hilasterion or propitiation. It, it is the means by which God will be merciful by sprinkling the blood of a sacrificial offering. Essentially, a life for a life is what is taking place. The life of the animal for my own, for you to grant me mercy. Uh, two of the biggest ideas and atonement are represented in uh, and embodied in the two goats. So here's my first point. Christ uh, grants us mercy. That's my very first point. Uh, Christ himself fulfills every aspect of atonement fully in ways that we can't even comprehend. It is his blood that is brought before the throne of God. It is the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who presents the blood uh, before the throne and the mercy seat. Guess what? It is Christ who sits on the throne. 
<laughs> like in ways that we can't even comprehend how it is Christ who grants us mercy. Now listen to what the Scriptures has to say. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the hilasterion for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It is Jesus Christ who is our propitiation for uh, our sins. He is advocating and pleading with God to forego his anger and to act mercifully toward his people. This is what he's doing. He is our advocate. And so when we sin, when we do what we're not supposed to do, and we go before God and we say, please forgive us, when you are in Christ, understand that it is Christ who is advocating before the Father for you to allow God to forgive you for your sins. It is his blood that was brought before God. It is his life that was given for ours. It is, it is, it is, it is his, uh, he is the propitiation for us. For us. In Christ, we have someone who has not only gone beyond the curtain, right, but he's torn the curtain down. The, the high priest had to go in, and when he went inside the curtain, they tied a rope to him, right? And they put the rope on him because they understood there was a chance that if he went in and he went in wrong, he wasn't coming out. And they just pull him out. Like, come on. <clears throat> Christ, when he's on the cross and he, he's on the verge of dying, the veil of the temple tears from the top down. Tears in half. And what it shows us is that, like, when it talks, like, Christ didn't go into the veil and then exit back out. He didn't go into the veil and then they had to tie a rope around him. He went into the veil, tore the veil apart, and he still sits there advocating for us every day, every hour, all day, all the time. This is the Christ that we serve. And he sits before the Father day and night and presented, uh, he, he presented himself with his own blood. And his blood, his blood, it is a blood that speaks better, even uh, better, a better word than the righteous blood of Abel. Hebrews 2 and 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Mercy seat. It's the same word. He is our great high priest. He is able to offer mercy 
mercy instead of justice. Mercy. Here's the second point. Uh, The blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. The blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. When when the high priest went around, uh, uh, he had, I I didn't read this part, but he had to go to the altar and on the horns of the altar, he had to rub blood on all four corners, and he had to uh, sprinkle the blood on uh, the mercy seat, and he sprinkled the blood all around the tabernacle, and he had to essentially cleanse uh, the place because of the sins of the people, like it just being in their midst defiled, uh, defiled it, and so so he had to make atonement for everything, uh, and and it is the blood. Uh, Look at Hebrews 9, 12, and 14. It says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls, uh, of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing our eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from uh, dead works to serve the living God. In other words, the blood that came from the bulls and from the goats, it only uh, purified it from the outside, right? He, He just purified our flesh. As a matter of fact, it tells us that nothing is purified without blood. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. But the blood of Christ... Because he is who he is, and he lived the life that he lived. And understand that atonement is just as much tied to Christ's living as it is to his death and resurrection. Because without the former, there is not the latter. But because of the life that Christ lived, and because he died and he rose again, his blood uh, is, is so much more effective to the point where it not just it doesn't just cleanse you like from an outward standpoint. It cleanses you from the inside. And so when we talk about being washed with the blood of the Lamb, we're talking about purification of your soul and your mind being able to live without a guilty conscience before the, the Lord. In other words, when you go before God, because you've been washed with the blood of Jesus Christ, You and I will not face judgment, but we will be given life, life eternally. Like it makes me want to, like I just want to take off just running down the street. When When I really consider what Christ has done for us in the heavenly places, right, not, not the earthly realm, in the heavenly places, what he's done. Spiritually, what he's done. He's cleansed us. I could make another point that's not even up here. Because of what he has done, you and I uh, have an obligation to live in the way that God desires for us to live. You've been bought with a price. You are not your own. We ought to rejoice and gladly live the kind of life that he desires for us to live. It ought to be second nature. You ought to want it. Why? Because he's been too good. 
He's been too good. Here's the last point. Christ takes our blame. He, in other words, is our scapegoat. Now, the scapegoat, the function of the scapegoat uh, is one of imputation. In other words, the sins of the people get placed on the goat, and he takes the blame. So it's not that the escape, the, it's not that the scapegoat is the escape goat, right? It's not that he gets to get away as to why we call him the scapegoat. We call him the scapegoat because he literally takes the blame, right? As I was telling our small group, he's the fall guy. Our sins get placed on him, and the goat takes the sin away. And, and he is now responsible for the sins that were placed on him. He is the scapegoat. Now, here's what actually happened. I, I did some, some research with regard to how they, how they did this thing. It was, very, it was a, an elaborate ceremony to all of this. They led the scapegoat out of the camp. They took him to the wilderness, and they had a place that they had picked out beforehand, uh, a cliff that they would take the goat to and just sort of gently push him until he fell off to, it, to his death. So, like, the goat didn't actually escape. Right? He had to pay a price for the sins that were placed on him. Uh, the, the wilderness was intended to be uh, a, a, essentially a dying place for the goat. But they wanted to make sure the goat didn't come back. Right? And so they get on, get on over, get on over the edge. Jesus takes our blame. Jesus is our scapegoat. What do you mean? Isaiah 53 and 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The same picture here that the iniquity is being laid on the goat. God says that our iniquity has been laid on Christ. John 1.29 says, Behold, when John the Baptist saw him coming to be baptized, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The scapegoat represents a picture of how God can forgive sins, offer mercy, and maintain his justice because sin demands death and judgment. And so the scapegoat allows God to maintain his justice and his holiness and at the same time, allow him to be merciful toward you and me. And so the first goat is God extending his mercy to his people. The second goat is uh, not only taking the blame, but eventually falling victim to the wrath of God. Romans 3, 23 and 20 through 26 says, and, and I, I, I love this passage too, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are 
justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a hilasterion by his blood to be received by faith. This was to, why? Why did he do it? To show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. So the, the things that, that were being brought before the Lord and placed on the goat, he passed over them. And even though he passed over them, he still had to show that he was righteous in what he was doing. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so God, through faith in Christ, can rightfully be merciful to you and apply your sin to Christ and punish your sin on the cross. And so you and I are no longer held responsible. And God can justify us or declare us innocent because of the work of Christ. This is what atonement is all about. What Christ has done on the cross allows God to not only extend you mercy, but to declare you righteous and still maintain his own righteousness, right? Because his righteousness says that sin, uh, his anger has to be extended against sin. That's what his righteousness uh, demands. Sin violates God's holiness. And you must and I must have propitiation. And we need God's mercy. Not that we want it. Like we need it. Without it, we are lost. Without his, his grand plan to extend salvation and deliverance, not from the world, not from uh, the devil, but from his anger, his righteousness, his judgment. Like, we need it. And that's why Jesus was saved. Don't fear the one who has the ability to kill your body. That ain't the one you need to fear. Who you fear is the one who has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. The word judgment uh, in Greek uh, is the word crisis. And it's where we get the word crisis from. Jesus talks about it a lot. Jesus is, is wanting people to know that we're on the precipice. Like, like this thing is about to go down. Right? And, and, and you need to repent. There's a crisis looming. A crisis of God's judgment. A crisis of his wrath. A crisis that no one can escape. All will be held accountable before him. Jesus says that every single word that comes out of our mouths will be held in account before God. Every single thing that you said, everything that you have thought, everything. And without Jesus Christ, you and I are done. 
Because if you get down to the very thoughts of a person, ain't nobody escaping. Ain't nobody escaping. If you get down to the words that come out of my mouth, ain't nobody escaping. I, I, you know, you might say I've done some good things, right? I ain't as bad as the next person. But can't nobody stand before God and declare themselves holy. All have sinned and fallen short of his glory. This is the conundrum. We need the atonement of Christ. Pray with me. Lord God, we just thank you for the atonement of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he laid down his life. We thank you that because of him, we are able to have life, that we are able uh, to be able to call you Father, that he mended the broken relationship that exists between us, God, that you no longer call us your enemy, but you call us your friend. Father, that we are no longer strangers and, and sojourners, but we can call you Father. We thank you that Christ lived the life that enabled him to come before you in the heavenly places and to offer himself as the Lamb of God. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. It's in your name. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If anyone here, and this is not an afterthought, if anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ for the pardoning of sins, to receive mercy from God, if you don't know him in that way, if you don't have a clear conscience before God and your conscience can only be cleansed by the blood of Christ through faith in him if you don't have that I'm begging you I'm begging you don't, don't leave this place today is the day don't leave this place because no one has promised the next moment let alone tomorrow you have an opportunity today and it's real easy like you're just a prayer away Asking God to forgive you. That's it. Tell him that you believe in Jesus Christ. Today is your day. I pray, I beg, I plead. Be reconciled to God. That's what Bridge is here for. And if that is on your heart, that's on your mind, don't leave this place without coming to talk with me. You can talk to Christy, Chris, Crystalline, like anyone in this place that I know loves the Lord, come up to us so that we can share Christ with you, and you won't be the same. It'll change you from the inside out. Let's stand and sing together. Great.